Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. and welcome to Nightlight. We have an amazing show for you tonight. Mark Eddy has brought um, a, a phenomenal author on board with him to, to talk to us about an amazing book. And um, I, I can't tell you how excited I am. I'm going to bring Mark on. Hey, Mark. Hey, Barbara. How are you? Very excited about this, this interview. I, mm-hmm. I really... Um, <clears throat> I'm very impressed by Gary Wayne and, you know, uh, his book, though I haven't delved into it as much as you have, is is awesome. And, and it, I'm surprised that he crammed as much as he did into it. And um, I can't it's wait to hear you guys. Yeah, yeah, I just, and of course, it's giants, <laughs> and I love giants, so... Um, that that is something that that I have been looking into. So I'm I'm so excited about um, you you bringing him on and uh, him sh- him for sharing uh, two hours of his busy schedule with us. Yeah, well, it's not it's not only going to be uh, giants. Uh, we can get into uh, fairies, the little people as well. It's uh, it's going to cover a little bit of everything tonight. Okay. Well, you want to tell everybody about Gary and 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 his book. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, everyone had a, a great Thanksgiving. Um, yeah. For our eleventh show, I should have waited twenty-two weeks uh, to bring Gary on to make his debut on Nightlight, but. Uh, that would give the impression that we are in league with a nefarious secret society. Um, <laughs> but you and I are our own secret society, and so so we're only one third nefarious tonight. Um, yeah, it's it's only the first master number. We've got two more to go. <laughs> and you know, last week I heard all about. Uh, uh, I have the most uh, abysmal 
No, it is an abominable uh, filing system. But it just takes me a little bit longer to find you know, someone's email address or the note I left to myself to, uh, you know, contact them, and you know it's usually buried under you know, paperwork or stuck underneath one of the expanding numbers of books that are encircling my desk, post-it notes. <laughs> but you know, I still get. Uh, you know, the guests, and, and this is going to be a great show, and uh, you know, tonight's no exception. Uh, you know, you know, G- Gary Wayne is the author of a truly captivating biblical, historical, metaphysical uh, book, The Genesis uh, Six Conspiracy. And it's, a, uh, it's a great read about you know, the Nephilim uh, from you know, the days of yore, and he chronicles their legacy and the agenda they have for us up to today. Um, My good friend Serenity loved the book. Um, You you can learn more about uh, Gary by visiting genesis6conspiracy.com. Tonight's uh, show bridges the prehistoric quadrilogy uh, we had a couple weeks ago with... uh, you know, the North American Giants and, and David Brody's Templars, and you know we're also going to be uh, you know, might be using some of this information, you know, like the you know, metaphysical aspect of uh, uh, this show. Uh, you know, link it to our Christmas extravaganza we have on December 11th with uh, David Collis and the Reverend Michael Carter. So um, I think it's probably enough of me uh, rambling. So uh, I want to welcome Gary Wayne to Nightlight for his debut. Hi, Gary. Hi, Mark. So happy to be here with you tonight. Very much looking forward to the conversation. I think we're going to raise the curiosity of the audience a little bit tonight. Yeah, I I can guarantee that's going to happen. So. Yeah, we're uh, you know, you know, I think we ought to just start pretty much at the beginning. Uh, you know, the, the Nephilim really aren't major characters in the Bible. There's not like the huge passages, you know, like you know, de- devoted to uh, Moses. You know, like Moses has, um, but you know. Where did you get you know, uh, so much of your information to you know, give us this you know, background on the Nephilim and you know their parent, you know their, their dads, the fallen angels, and you know maybe we should start there at the beginning, which is also at the beginning of uh, you know, the. Uh, Sort of uh, the Old Testament. Sure, it's uh, always always a good place to start. So, uh, and in terms of your references to the Bible being quite stingy on the references to giants, they are and they aren't. It's in certainly uh, comes up fairly quickly in Genesis in Genesis chapter six, uh, six one through four, and then that's all you get 
about the giants before the flood. So, and at that point in time, you have some interesting a group of beings called the sons of God who go to human females, and they marry any one of them they choose, and they have offspring, which are the giants, as it's recorded in the King James Version Bible, um, or Nephilim in other translations, and that's because the word uh, giant goes back to Hebrew to uh, H5303 Nephil. And so these were giant super demigods that uh, were the offspring of the sons of gods who were angels and or gods in other uh, polytheist beliefs. Um, and there was many of these watchers as they're known out of the first book of Enoch. So when you start digging into giants in the Bible, that's all you get until you get uh, beyond the flood and then it starts again. And maybe I'll come back to that in a few minutes. But Mm -hmm. the source for giants in terms of information from outside biblical sources is absolutely extraordinary, whether or not it's an apocrypha like first Enoch or second Enoch or third Enoch or the book of giants of Enoch or the Manichaean book of giants or Gnostic Gospels or in the Rig Vedas and the Upanishads and the subcontinent of India with their religious texts on, you know, beings like the Danua or the Datiya or the Azura or in Greek mythology and religion where you have the heroes and the Titans. And of course, they're kind of called both. And there's also Titan God. So it gets a little bit confusing sometimes with Greek mythology and it doesn't matter where you go around in the world, whether or not it's in Central America with the Kishamaya, they have their own, uh, you know, holy book in, in, in history. And out of the Popol Vuh, you learn about the Zibalba. You have, you know, the dragon uh, heavenly gods who produce dragon kings in China, which are known as Myosi and several other names. You've got in Sumeria, uh, the tradition of the Anunnaki, Um, which also had earthly offspring. You've got the fairy mythology that has four different classifications of beings, but also includes these gods and the offspring, uh, um, and and mostly known as Tuatha Danan. So this is a worldwide phenomena. So even though before the flood, and I call that the antediluvian epoch, the, the information is stingy, Once you cross over the flood, which is kind of the two chapters to the stories of the giants, which then starts to bring in more of the North American accounts from what, you know, people are starting to to, to learn about the serpent mounds and the redheaded giants, whether or not it's in North America or in South America. They're all sort of part of the same story. But we also have a fairly large amount of text on giants after the flood and right up to the time of the Exodus, where there's significant uh, series of what I call the Nephilim Wars, and then even up to the time of King David with Goliath, who, again, is part of the giants. And when you have that word giant uh, in, you know, after the flood, it goes back, except for one time, to uh, two times uh, to the word Rapha, which is, again, uh, the singular form of Raphaim, which is giants, as it's described in the uh, in the King James Version Bible and other translations, will just go right to Raphaim. And then there are there's a significant nomenclature of 
giant names that go with it. That most people, when they're reading the Bible, don't understand these nations as, as giant nations. But so when we talk about where did I get the information, it was literally worldwide and inclusive of secret societies and their connections to giants and the religions of the giants and their start of their secret societies. So um, that's why it turned out to be a fairly long book because there's just so much information that's out there and so many people just are not familiar with the recollection of giants in prehistory and also after the flood. Okay, so yeah, ju- just to make things clear, it, so if you know, you're talking about uh, the Watchers, the Anunnaki, the Nephilim, it, it's basically uh, you know, different names for the same uh, characters found in the, all all these sacred texts. Is that yes? Yes, that's fair, correct. Fairly? So okay, okay. yeah, yeah. So you have like in. Greek mythology, you have, you know, the uh, the Olympian gods, which is a lower level go- uh, uh, set of gods, than the parent gods were Kronos and um, the rest of the Greek gods come from, but it's the Olympian gods like Zeus or Zeus and uh, Poseidon and a-, a number of other ones that will have sex with human females to create you know, heroes also known as Titans like Atlas or like Theseus or like Perseus or like Hercules. And so, again, in, in, in Sumerian, you have Anunnaki who are both of heaven and of earth. Of course, anytime they refer to a, the same type of name as of the earth, that will be the demigods because these were the supernatural sort of second lower level types of gods that were, you know, um, gods in a physical body sense. And uh, the reason why they're called demigods is, is because that definition in the ancient definition and understanding, even if you look it up in the Bible, in the dictionary today, is going to say the offspring of a god and a human. So it's the same translation that's going on with the sons of God or the angels or the watchers that are in Enoch. So yes, we just have different names different vernacular names to the to the various uh, mythologies and religions all around the world on all continents except for Antarctica and who knows what we'll find on Antarctica down the road okay so probably uh, you know a a lot of our listeners are you know familiar with the fallen angels landed on Mount Hermon, uh, you know, you cover, cover that in, uh, you know, the Genesis 6 conspiracy. Like, it, and so they, you know, they uh, find, you know, their girlfriends and uh, wives. Uh, and, you know, you make a point that the uh, fallen angels uh taught their their uh you know, sons the uh nephilim and you know, giants uh so you know what were the fallen angels teaching their kids and you know, kind of start to make our way into you know this secret secret learning 
Yeah, there's a strong tradition of knowledge that comes from the gods, whether or not it's from the angels in Enoch or from all around the world. And that's kind of what starts sort of civilization is most of the uh, sort of bringing together of the ideas will, will come together as it's kind of the same concept. But there's two things that are, are kind of going on here. First of all, you have what the secret societies and the Gnostics will talk about, about the seven sacred sciences that are developed before the giants are created. And this is the knowledge, again, that comes from the gods, but it's given to the humans and, in this case, um, developed in, in a way that is not the same way that Seth, son of Adam, is going to do it, but with the Cainites who uh, are turning away from God are developing it and develop into what they call the seven sacred sciences and disciplines, which leads to the mystical religions and to the secret societies to further it even more. Come around the sixth generation, you have the gods and or the fallen angels marrying with human females to create the Nephilim, and they are going to also provide significant more information and knowledge that is going to accelerate this knowledge that is going to take the antediluvian world to a very high level of technology, perhaps even what we have today or more. But I won't get into that. That's another rabbit trail. But understand, this is how they're able to create all of these great megaliths that we can't create today. It's part of that same sort of block of knowledge, which is the fifth science of geometry, or as they call them, the craft masonry. And they built these megaliths to honor the gods for giving them the civilization and the knowledge to improve those, those civilizations. And so you have the Nephilim being created as to rule over the rest of humankind. So you have two different species. You have the, the offspring of human females and uh, fallen angels, and you also have the other humans. And these beings are created to be rulers and to dominate humankind because they're a su superior being as they're looked upon, which is why they're called demigods. And so they're the intermediary between heaven and earth. They are the gods representative on earth and receive their right to rule from the gods. And because they're so much larger and stronger and whatever other attributes they may have had, uh, other than things like having their eyes glow that it would light up a room um, and their fearsome size and, and their, their um scary sort of looks because they also had a face of a of a viper and we can go down that or as a snake we can go down that a little bit later if you want to know how okay. that sort of comes about but they they become the kings in this organizational structure in the antediluvian world so you have sort of this partnership between the angels who uh, everybody is going to be worshiping because the Nephilim are going to use their size to take over the world. You have this religion of the angels that begat with Cain and Enoch, son of Cain, not Enoch, son of Seth. There's two of them in the two separate genealogies. And so you have, you have the Nephilim, you have the religion, you have this knowledge that's being developed into secret societies, uh, and to develop certain aspects of that. And you have the fallen angels that are working in this organizational structure, and you have priests that are going to be very, very important as well that are going to work in partnership with the king. And that's why you see in all of these antediluvian mythologies a king and a wizard 
or a priest generally depicted as a wizard because that is a priest of the polytheist religions. And so they work sort of hand in hand to control the antediluvian world. Okay. And they appear in uh, you know, the Sumerian tablets, you know, you know that would be uh, so, some form of documentation surviving from the, seems like almost like the you know, very early times, you know, pre-Diluvian or anti-Diluvian yeah, the times. Sum- the, the Sumerians give a terrific... Um, recollection of this and they give two possibilities as to why you see giants who show up after the flood and so the best known example would be the epic of Gilgamesh and in the epic of Gilgamesh you have Gilgamesh who is depending on which historian you're using he's going to be um, using secular chronology about 24 to 2600 BC so he's going to be probably about six generation as my memory recalls so he is created after the flood uh, and he is two-thirds god and one-third human um, as he's described and as a demigod so he's created in the same way as the nephilim were before the flood but he's created after flood as is uh, enkidu who is his his created to offset the evilness of gilgamesh by the same gods but they become quick friends. So you have two examples of what I would call second incursion of the gods or the fallen angels after the flood, but also in the epic of Gilgamesh, you have the flood story with Utnapishtim or Zyazudra, depending on which, you know, translation that you're going to be taking it out, whether it's Babylonian or Sumerian or Akkadian, which are the three general ones, you'll find those two names are the two that are generally used. And he is also two-thirds god and one-third human, and he takes his whole family who are of the same nature. So these are the same types of beings. only thing is, is what they're doing with the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, with the flood story of with Utnaptishan, is they're also now showing from their accounts that there were giants that, were, uh, that survived the flood on an ark in a very similar way that Noah is in, with the flood, but the details are quite a bit different than are what in the Noah story. So this seems to be more of a giant survival story as to Genesis, which would be a human survival story, which is not uncommon around the world where you have both sets of parallel stories of a human survival and a uh, Nephilim survival. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at, uh, yeah, the different genres uh, in uh, the, the, uh, the uh, histories or folklore. Uh, cool. And so, as you know, you know, we keep going through the anti-Diluvian world. Uh, okay, you. We get to some of the megalith builders. Uh, you know, you do, do give us a lot of interpretations of uh, uh, the Tower of Babel and you know, the ziggurats and uh, building of the pyramids. Uh, yeah. you, you, you place a lot of importance on these early structures and Nimrod. You know, we probably 
uh, you know, the audience might remember a little bit of Nimrod uh, from you know, David Brody's lecture a couple weeks ago. But, uh, you know, what was his role in all these early engineering project, projects and what did they symbolize? Sure. So the first thing for, for the audience to remember is, is there's two sets of uh, banks of knowledge and two types of structures that are going to be built. And although they're similar, uh, one has a technology that is far superior to the other. So you have Nimrod who shows up after the flood and you have the society before the flood. And before the flood are the great sort of megalithic structures that are built in and created. And so you have things like the pyramids, which would probably be the best known one. But I would also have people look at, you know, places like Machu Picchu and so many other sites around in terms of the technology that it takes to to build those things. And they're built with sacred geometry, just as the serpent mounds are. And and, and it's unbelievable how the serpent mounds where the soil doesn't erode away. So they they built some other technology in there as well that those those mounds didn't. Um, just sort of slip away in, with with erosion, and so out of that tradition you have in before the flood you have this knowledge that Enoch, who is the great patriarch of, of, of Gnosticism and the secret societies, he is given credit for taking that knowledge to the level, and I think then assisted by the the gods and the fallen angels after the Nephilim were created to build these monumental structures to their world and to their gods like the pyramids to a level that we can't do today so after the flood is when nimrod shows up and so nimrod builds the tower of babel in babel city now what's interesting about nimrod is that he is described in the uh the bible as you know son of cush so he's not the offspring of a fallen angel or a god but somehow he became a gibberine, which is a word that is used to describe Nephilim in Genesis uh, 6-4. Um, but gibberine is used 158 times in the Old Testament in terms of the Hebrew word. And so not all of those are used to describe giants, but in a lot of cases they are. So a lot of people think that, uh, and, and Nimrod has a strong sort of following as being a uh, Nephilim, but all we know is he's son of Cush and he becomes a Gibrim. So he's like a Nephilim, but as the Gnostics and the secret societies suggest is, is he, he was like one, but he really wasn't one. But what he does do is he partners with a fellow by the name of Hermes, um, according to uh, polytheist records uh, coming again from the Gnostics and the secret societies. And he finds the knowledge of Enoch. Because Enoch and his descendants, Lamech, who's another great patriarch within this line of global Gnosticism where this comes from, is, is that they build two pillars that survived the flood, and it has directions to where this bank of knowledge that they had before the flood was hidden. And Hermes finds one of these pillars, and he goes to um, the pyramids in Egypt, and he finds this knowledge, and he takes it back to... Uh, Nimrod and they partner. So now you have Hermes, who's again this wizard type priest like figure, and you now you have this Nephilim type character with Nimrod, although I don't believe he was Nephilim. And they start to reproduce this 
knowledge and their first thing that they were, they're going to do with this knowledge is do what they did um, in the antediluvian times and they're going to build a ziggurat. But this ziggurat now they're going to build or this tower of Babel is built from smaller bricks and from mortar. So it hasn't, they don't have the same sort of inspired skill level. They've got this raw knowledge, but they're struggling obviously to, to develop it. But what's interesting about Nimrod is, is the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons, they recognize Nimrod as writing the first constitution for masonry after the flood and the first grand master of masonry after the flood from the knowledge created by masons and those secret societies before the flood. So Nimrod has a significant sort of... uh, historical linkage for both monotheism in terms of how they recall the early period after the flood, as well as with uh, many of the other polytheist religions and, and secret societies. And the other thing that comes up in other research is, is that Nimrod seemed to have incorporated using giants in the building of the flood and you get that out of uh, armenian accounts of the building of the tower of babel and you also get that out of central america where it just i had i put in a description of uh, a a babel-like tower being built Um, and this is out of the you know from the aztec accounts um, with giants and course the gods stop it from being built and they disperse the people uh, around the world and they change the languages so if you didn't know it was a Aztec account you would think it might have been just sort of a parallel story that was written in Genesis and just as you get in Anertus Pride and um, um, uh, the Enuma Elish you have an account of a person called Enmurakar, who is going to build a tower um, just as Nimrod does, and he's third generation just as Nimrod is, and the same thing happens where the gods stop that, and they disperse the, the people and change the languages, and so you, you get these these accounts that not only sort of support the Babel Tower building, um, but also the identicalness of it, um, and including giants um, in the uh, Nurnur's Pride and Enuma Elish uh, epics. So these are, you know, when you pick, when you sort of point towards Nimrod, it's kind of a lightning rod for a whole bunch of people's research for very, very good reasons. And in you know, chapter 29, you do bring up um, uh, the Tower of Babel. It was an act of self-glorification, a statement of independence, marking the rebirth of the antediluvian epic of corruption, debauchery, and rebellion. And you go on to uh, state that that was almost like a renaissance, the kind of renaissance you don't want, but uh, the, you know, it seems like it's kind well, of and, and, led. Oh, I, I was just oh. going to jump in. Sorry to sorry to interrupt, and because we didn't really talk about why the flood came, uh, and it's a similar reason around the world. So when you have this 
Babel story happening uh, starting at about seven years after the flood and completing it at, at about a, a hundred years before it's destroyed and the people are dispersed, you have to understand that they're now in full rebellion the same way the antediluvian world was in full rebellion. And when I say full rebellion, in the monotheistic perspective, which I am as a Christian, uh, would be against God. But in the other traditions, the giants are rebelling against their gods. And those gods are brought together to bring about the flood because of the violence and the corruption and how evil the giants became. The difference is, is on the monotheist side is you don't get how they became uh, evil or whether or not they were good in the beginning or not, because the polytheist tradition has good giants like Hercules and Theseus and others, even though they still worship uh, a pantheon of gods. Um, but somehow, some way, most of these became evil, and not only did they turn against the gods, but they turned against humans to wipe them out, eat them, drink their blood, um, use them in sacrifice, but they also turned on each other. So they turned on everybody, including themselves, and it sort of left in every tradition around the world, the only option was to bring out the flood and start over. And within 100 years after the flood, we see the same type of rebellion taking place. Okay, and you go on to note that uh, Nimrod was, you know, like the, <clears throat> be the first to create a world government. And I think as we, you know, go throughout the show, you know, we're, you know d- develop this topic even more but is you know Nimrod you know like the first person to try the world domination uh, you know you know think that he can dominate the world and you know you eventually get Napoleon and Alexander the Great and Hitler and they yeah, all failed I, I think I think he starts the post-Diluvian tradition in that respect. Um, But Nimrod wouldn't be the first one. And I would say that the king of Atlantis would have been the first one because he, you know, Atlantis has 10 um, sort of empires within the larger Atlantean empire. So not just the island continent. They had settlements in North Africa and in Europe and in Central America and Ireland and England. And there was 10 of them. And they were trying to take over the whole world to set up a um, uh, world government. And they were considered the helm of world government in the antediluvian age and the golden age. Now, after the flood, within a very short period, there's not nearly as many sort of people. And so Nimrod is, is trying to do exactly that is, is become the, the, the dictator of the world become the, you know, what we would call from a Christian perspective, the antichrist of the world with this religion that he receives from Hermes from across the flood, which becomes known as Babel and is the root is the allegorical and root religion for what is to happen in the end time called Babylon, Babel, Babylon. It's the same, um, it's the same rigid religion, which is why if people are going to get into prophecy, my perspective is, is learn some prehistory because it's really going to help 
in understanding uh, some of the from the prophetic terms, so you know, so that you'll know what happens in the end time. And so, yes, he is the first one with almost universal sway from a uh, monotheist perspective after the flood, and he imposes the same religion on and is rebelling from God. Okay, and you know, Gary gave us uh, you know, pretty thorough look at uh, well a lot of the you know, uh, a book of Genesis. Uh, but you, know, you also go on to mention, and like you already have in the uh, you know, your discussion, uh, the. Uh, you know, the Aztecs are doing the the same type of uh, pyramid building. Uh, so so we get into uh, you know I just want to you know, take this into you know like a north uh, north and South American uh, you know, direction for a little bit and sh- show that you know this was a worldwide phenomenon. It certainly was, and not only in North and South America, but you get pyramids all around the world. Um, I haven't seen any on Australia yet, but certainly through Russia, through China, through parts of Europe, uh, through the Middle East, um, Central and South America, you get these pyramids uh, that are built, and they have similar geometry in terms of angles, and in terms of sacred geometry that's encoded to them and to astrological alignments, knowledge that people either before the flood or after the flood by traditional understanding did not have the ability to, to do, let alone the quality of the masonry uh, and the size of the project, which again, um, we're not able to do today. And so this is a worldwide phenomena that has a similar understanding in terms of how they got built and who provided the knowledge and, and who built them. And uh, it's, again, it's all in that tradition in terms of the Nephilim and to honor the pantheon of the gods. And incidentally, for people who may not be um, aware of it, um, my research and understanding shows that these various religions around the world, whether it's with the Kishamaya or the Incas or um, with the uh, Hindus uh, in um, subcontinent of India, they all have the same pantheon of gods. They just have different vernacular names for those gods. And so once you start to understand that, you understand why you see such similarities with these gods all around the world. They're just called by a different name. Okay, and okay. Let's uh, move. Or, or, like, do do you find that uh, you know, the uh, there is a biblical accuracy to all these you know, you know stories that have uh, you know, drawn the attention of archaeologists who. You know, you know, discovered Troy and you know, where Jericho w- was located. Do, you know, do, you know, it, it, are, 
Is, is there much of a, a discrepancy uh, between you know, what's in the Old Testament and the um, archaeological record? Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Um, there's obviously a dispute between the religions of the world and the mythologies of the world um, with science. Uh, in, in archaeology in terms of trying to find evidence of, of the flood, although they may be looking mm-hmm. for the wrong evidence in terms of it was more than just the flood. But in terms of archaeological sites that have been discovered, they tend to prove biblical history as they discover them, just as, as you say, discovering uh, Hazor or discovering Jericho as examples or discovering Troy from a Greek perspective. They don't tend to find archaeology that disproves the Bible. Where there seems to be a gap is that archaeology hasn't found everything listed in the various ancient accounts, whether it's biblical or outside biblical records. It's just a matter of finding them. But when you understand that the flood is more than just a flood and it's a cataclysm of events that probably turned much of the earth crust and everything, you know, sort of upside down and inside out um, and probably sank great pieces of land masses, a lot of these before floods uh, archaeology or archaeological sites and cities that are recorded are probably underwater, just as you have, you know, Dwarka off of the subcontinent of India. You've got these great right. uh, sunken cities off the coast of Southeast Asia. Um, they're finding, you know, along the Bahamas now uh, some significant structures there. I mean, they're they're just almost everywhere, and so at some point in time they sank. And so the question is, is how old are those locations and when did they sink? So archaeology hasn't been able to get at those and they haven't found all, everything else that is listed in all of the ancient record. But over time they will because, you know, that record's going to be there. Okay, cool. Um, you know, we probably have some uh, uh shows coming up where you know we'll just uh be mentioning uh, artworks uh submerged by the creation of the modern locks and dam system so it's all all the same thing and how much we're how much information we've lost but you know there's the possibility of it might be uh rediscovered but I'll keep talking about that, um, but it, um, you know, you, you know, your, you know, the title of you know, your book is uh, the Genesis Six Conspiracy, and uh, you know, Genesis Six is where you know, the Nephilim are introduced. But yeah, you, uh, you know, you are also taking your the title of your book from an actual uh, meeting. I, I thought that was pretty uh, interesting. That uh, you know, from chapter uh, twenty-nine, uh, you know, Nimrod, you know, the um, uh, you know, meeting Nimrod had. I'll let 
I like that. That that was an intriguing aspect to understanding your uh, book and like how long these like like secret cabals ha- have gone on, and we'll, we'll get into that later with the Bilderberger Group. I don't know if there was a question yeah, in there, I, just this, just just some kind of rambling well, I, statement. I think- I think I think you raise uh, a good point. It's kind of one of the overarching, you know, points of, of my book is that if you want to understand prehistory and history, you need to understand the players, and it's that organizational structure that I was talking about between mm-hmm. this marriage and meeting of bloodlines and dynasties of kings, which go back to the giants and this mystical religion that's created in the antediluvian world and crosses the flood and how both of those cross the flood uh, and the illicit knowledge and the knowledge bank that is developed that also crosses the flood and how all of that has impacted our history and is active today. And if, if you don't understand how they intermix, it becomes fairly confusing but once you understand the organizational structure then a whole bunch of things start to 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 come into place and that's why it's so important to understand that these religions and these secret societies and the gods or fallen angels and the nephilim were before the flood and they show up again after the flood and they set up the same organizational structure Uh, and usurping the kingships and developing these dynastic bloodlines to rule over humankind and set up that sort of elite class of people that they feel are superior to the average mundane human. Okay. Yeah, and maybe it's being exposed more every day today. So, well, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get to that uh, more in the uh, second hour. But you know, you, you you also go on to, to discuss uh, and d- devote a lot of time to Saul and uh, David, and you know, kind of maybe wrap that up and move into some of the early uh, medieval. Uh, period as well. So it, sure, it, I, I didn't I have realize a, have, you know Saul was considered a a, a large man. Yeah, it was one of the reasons why he was chosen because he was you know like a head and shoulder above most of the average Israelite. And there's a reason for why they're going to choose Saul. Not only does he have within Israel considered strong bloodlines, not Nephilim bloodlines, but strong. But they wanted, as their first king, somebody who would be hopefully strong enough and big enough to continue to handle and fight against the giants, because the giants are around at the time of King Saul and and King David. So now I'm just Mm -hmm. going to back up just a couple of steps so that I can... Um, sort of explain and bring along the audience a little bit here. So uh, I mentioned earlier that somehow the 
the Nephilim crossed the flood. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you get two different ways, and some other people think somehow on the Ark as genes and through the descendants of, of Canaan, but I think the Canaanites just intermarried into um, the giants as my preferred position, and a second incursion, so that what happened before the flood in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 would have happened again after the flood, either at Mount Herman or at Sodom and Gomorrah, which kind of explains a little bit more of why such a horrible destruction for Sodom and Gomorrah is recorded. Um, and their sins also continued, but uh, until that destruction. So you have nations like the Raphaim, you have nations like the Avim, you have nations like the Anakim, you have the Horim, the Havim, the Hivim, the Zamzuzim, um, the Emin, and more showing up after the flood. And biblically, they don't have a connection back to the Table of Nations. And for people who aren't sure what the Table of Nations are, that's listed in the Bible in First Chronicles 1 and Genesis 10, the descendants of Noah and his three sons and the nations that came from those nations. These people have no connection back there, but they show up out of nowhere in the flood, just like you have Seir uh, in, uh, uh, as one of the chiefs of Edom before the Israelites show up, and the descendants of Esau will intermarry with these, these Horim and Hivim that are, that are down there, and they're Malachim. Uh, another name that people may not be familiar with when they're talking about giants. And, of course, you have the hybrid giant nations where um, they intermarry with the Canaanites uh, in the land of Canaan. And, you know, you get hybrid nations like the Hittites and many, many other nations um, um, that are play a significant role as you move forward into the time of the Exodus. But even before you get into the the Exodus in Genesis 14, you get what I call the War of Four Kings against Five, or the War Against Giants, where you have a Mesopotamian alliance who would also have bloodlines of giants in there, but they're going to war with these uh, nations that I just mentioned, and it's this this massive war that happens in the time of of uh, Abraham, and Abraham actually has to save Lot. Uh, after he is kidnapped by these Mesopotamian armies, he actually takes a commando squad in and, and frees them out. So Abraham lived amongst these giants. And when you have the exodus with the Israelites coming out of Egypt, this is the land that they're going to have to take, a land occupied by all of these different giant nations and hybrid giants that they're going to have to take with tall, huge, fortified walls. And chariot armies and uh, weapons that were far superior. And this is what Israel, after being trained for 40 years and being scared to death of what they saw when they sent the spies in right after the Exodus, are being prepared to take, to take on uh, when they go in to take the land in, in the land of the covenant. And still they need all the help that God can provide them or will provide them based on how well, they're honoring God because they get a lot of stumbling blocks on this way um, to taking the, the land of the covenant because the land is filled with these monsters. And we're not talking about seven-foot giants here. We're not talking about eight-foot giants here. We're talking 10-foot plus, um, even after the flood. And you get, for an example, like Goliath, and I'll come back to him in a second, he is, okay. you know... Um, 
pro- was probably the king of Gath. He's a Gittite. And again, understand that the Nephilim were the rulers. And he is the head warrior for part of the, uh, the Avim Pentathalom, which is uh, Pentapolis, which is mixed in with the Philistines. And if you take uh, a royal cubit, which is 21 inches, as opposed to the standard cubit, which is 18 inches, you move uh, Goliath up from... Uh, you know, the standard getting close to, you know, say uh, nine feet, he moves over, over 10 feet tall. And Og's bed, uh, using that same type of understanding in terms of the cubits that are listed, and King Og was Raphaim, uh, his bed would have been almost 16 feet measured by a royal cubit. And so he would have been probably somewhere between 12 and 14 feet tall. And then the bed had to be made of iron, because wood would not hold his weight. So these were the monsters, and they just weren't tall. They had a height-to-width ratio that was 2 to 1, compared to the average human, which would be 3 to 1. So they're 50% wider. So they're built like you know, a, a football lineman or a WWF wrestler in terms of that visual, only taller, right? And they were strong, and they weren't sort of freak shows these they had um, just as the heroes in greek mythology were fleet of foot and dexterous with their hands so were the the warriors afterwards so they were the great warriors after the flood that you know the humans had to take on and so when we look at these monsters that uh the israelites were up against and everybody likes to look at it with revisionist history to say that they wiped out these innocent people. These were giants waiting in ambush to wipe Israel from the face of the earth because you've got this ongoing um, fight between the descendants of the gods and the humans. Uh, And uh, they only want humans, as I said, for their own purposes. Um, And so, you know, to do work for them um, and to, to essentially be their slaves and for them to rule over. So now when we roll forward to the time of King Saul and David, understand that Goliath is just one of these giants that they're up against with the Philistines um, and the Avim who rule over the Philistines and live amongst them because they, the, the people of Israel in terms of Joshua and his army, they did not take the Philistine region when they took the land of the covenant. So these giants still remained there. And so picking Saul as being taller as the first king was a a choice that the people made, not the choice that God wanted, which is why you have the David story that comes right in behind Saul. Okay. And we're approaching the... uh, you know, uh, end of the first hour. And, you know, I just want to let the audience know that uh, we have Gary Wayne as our guest, and his book is The Genesis Six Conspiracy. Um, I, I think that <laughs> the listeners uh, should have a really good impression now that uh, your book is a lot more than just a biblical book. It's 
uh, combination of uh, metaphysical information, you know, with the sacred geometry, uh, and a lot of the sites you've spoken about are covered in ancient aliens and you know, it's, uh, the Da Vinci Code, and I, it, you know, this is like a really comprehensive book looking at what six thousand years or so of uh, human history. Yeah, and the one thing that my book does that other because there's other people who write on aliens, there's other people who write on fairies, there's other people who write on giants and secret societies and and what have you that I have in the book. But what my book does is connects all of the dots and brings you from prehistory to our time and then the not so distant future. And which is why, as I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to understand that organizational structure so that you know exactly what has happened. And I I was noticing, uh, um, you know, on the intro today, uh, I think the, if I remember, right, you know, covering things like fairies and unicorns. Well, this is all part of that whole thing, including unicorns. So um, if if you want to start making sense uh, and, and of the language of how they do everything in plain sight today, you're going to learn that language in the book as well, because this is, this, this as I say, they do everything in plain sight. And they are on a, on a collision course uh, to bring in global government and recreate the antediluvian uh, rebellion and or the uh, rebellion at uh, Babel. Okay, so uh, yeah, I I do think your 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 book is just fascinating. Uh, you know, the connecting the dots is you know, an outstanding aspect of uh, your book. So, but you know, let's jump forward a little bit to you know, go, go from uh, you know, the Old Testament to uh, you get, uh, some New Testament in, information, and we'll get get into the. Uh, Early Middle Ages, but uh, you, know, you do uh, work in you know, the, the uh, Jesus and uh, Mary Magdalene's uh, marriage and the, their child, and you know that can t- take us into the uh, King Arthur and uh, Merovingian uh, uh, dynasties and. Uh, you know the Rex uh, Deus or Deus. Um, so where where can we go from you know, uh, you know so, so some of this New Testament information that leads us into yeah. uh, you know the Middle Ages, early, early Middle Ages. Yep. Yeah. So. We'll get. Uh, I'll get to that as quickly as I can here, but just okay. to give uh, some connections for people so okay. that they will understand um, how this sort of comes about. You know, let's say from about the birth of Jesus forward in around that area. Okay. Um, so after the flood, uh, as I mentioned, is is uh, 
even though there are some kingships that start off with humans, they are all sort of usurped by the the giants who show up after the flood, either surviving or, as I prefer, a second incursion. And they usurp the kingships, and they set up the great dynasties of the early post-Diluvian world that continue. And as the population increases, they set up new dynasties based on bloodlines and intermarriages that continue to, for the most part, stay in control. So when you have, uh, whether or not it's the pharaohs out of Egypt uh, or the uh, the Hittites or the uh, Mitanni, Mitannia dynasty or Mitanni dynasty out of Mesopotamia um, or the Amalekites, they were all intermarrying with each other to keep their bloodlines as pure as they can, right? Because the higher the pedigree, the the, the closer they are to the, the original seed, which comes from the ne- original Nephilim and the original Rephaim and the uh, the gods, right? And they are mm-hmm. the divine rulers given divine right to rule. And they bring along with them these various religions um, with the exception of um, Israel, which is develops a monotheist religion, uh, which will develop... Uh, Christianity, and then Islam as sort of a third offshoot of it in opposition to the polytheist religions. And so this is what comes down through history. And as the giants are being pushed out from uh, the Middle East and some of these dynasties are falling, whether or not it's the Assyrian dynasty or the Babylonian dynasty or um, the Greek uh, empire and you're moving into the Romans, you're moving sort of further west, and you're getting these dynasties that are moving further west. And so you have the great, the nobility class, and even the nobles, uh, when I talk about the nobility class, they are just sort of third, fourth, fifth, sixth sort of uh, branches off away from the original sort of uh, head branch of that bloodline. So the nobility is all relatives, right? It's the same bloodline. They may not have as pure, but uh, this is important to, to keep in mind. So as we move into the time just before Jesus and after Jesus, you have now a movement that's starting to move forward that is going to start to homogenize a number of the religions and this is the Gnostic religion that I'm talking about and you know it's the religion of Egypt uh, the religion of and the philosophies uh, of Greece and the mystical side of the religion in Israel which is the Kabbalah and so this is and you've got the Sabians and you got the Jonite brothers and the facilities and all and the Gnostics of Alexandria is all starting to come together in sort of this 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 uh, larger religion that is recognizing the religious roots, just as how I described it, that they all worship the same pantheon of gods. They just have different names. And so this is coming together, and all of a sudden Jesus is born, and you get the birth of Christianity that is going to branch out and be in significant opposition to, to, to this religion. So this is what sets up what I call the last 2,000 years of, of the conspiracy. So it really starts to form from a Western conspiracy role from about the, uh, you know, the birth of Jesus. And these religions are also going to adopt 
Jesus and James the Just into their um, religious uh, cosmology, not as uh, with Jesus as being the Son of God um, or the Word of God, but as being another prophet, an important individual, but a mortal, which is the difference. So Jesus would be now looked at upon uh, in this cosmology as a prophet like Hermes or Zoroaster or Confucius or uh, any one of the the many that they would say would be these enlightened people sent on the way to help humans uh, to godhood. And so this is sort of that religious sort of undertow that when you hear about a Gnostic uh, Christian, that's kind of what they're referring to in that kind of sense. And so after the death of Jesus, you have, you know, the rise of Christianity and you have this concept that is now going to be called um, what they call the Despacini, which is the family of Jesus. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean the descendants of Jesus, but that's what it's been drafted into. And so we have these kingships in the West that I was talking about that are all have roots back to the Middle East, uh, where all of this is going to start to intersect as, as we move into the era of, of sort of Europeanism, if I can, if I can call it that. So any questions in terms of uh, of that, Mark, until I start to link in no, what no, you were no. just talking about? Um, Good. Yeah, you did that perfectly. You just keep, keep, keep moving forward. Yeah, I just wanted to not lose people and, and leave too too many gaps, and because we're still moving fairly quickly on on some of this material. So, so the thought is is that. Um, from the Gnostic side, which is the religion of the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians, um, is that uh, Jesus did not die on the cross, um, even though he was a great prophet, uh, that he was taken down from the cross before he died and nursed back to health by Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, after Jesus will meet up with Mary Magdalene. And, and if anybody's watched the Da Vinci Code, even though it's a fictional book, it's accurate with their beliefs that he marries uh, Mary Magdalene and he has three sons. Um, and it's the third son that carries forward with the bloodline for a variety of reasons I won't go into. Uh, and his name is Josephus. And then Joseph of Arimathea will take him to Glastonbury and he will marry into the Tuatha Danon descendants, the Celtic descendants, and the Pendragons of England and in Ireland and Wales, so to speak. Um, I know I'm doing a wide brush with that, but specifically though the Welsh branch for the most part. And so Josephus is now going to marry into because of his uh, uh, noble stature, because he is, as they would like to look at. Jesus from a Gnostic perspective, the son of Jesus, who is a descendant of David, who is of royal bloodlines from the Israelite bloodline. So this is considered a very noble bloodline as well, and is going to marry into the Pendragon dynasties of King Arthur. And that's why when you read King Arthur, you're talking and you're getting into a, a sort of a intersection of 
allegories and terms. You've got like a fairy queen of uh, Guinevere, and you've got mm-hmm. Arthur as the son of uh, of a pen, Uther Pendragon, and Morgan Pendragon is chief dragon, and Morgan Le Fay, and you've got now this wizard aspect of Merlin, and Merlin is a title, and so you've got that that organizational structure and these allegories. And I won't go through every allegory uh, of of the belief system, but in the allegories of how the Gnostics believe is, is that you have two main allegories for the patriarchal or male bloodline and two allegories for the matriarchal bloodline or the female bloodline that goes back into the mist of time and all of the kings and nobility and high bloodlines will keep their genealogies because of the importance of that pedigree for their stature within the bloodlines. And so those allegories are raven, as in Anunnaki, you get a picture of a raven, and dragon, which is the same as a serpent. And hence you have the allegory of the Pendragons, um, you know, in the, in the Arthur um, kingship from the male side. And fairy and owl are the female allegories. And of course, that's why you have the fairy queens and fairy godmothers and fairy tales, because that derives out of the Celtic tradition of the Tuatha Danann, uh, both in Ireland and England, and also a very similar tradition because it's the same root set of Nephilim that come out of Scythia after the flood that go up to the Norse mythology that we see reflected in fairy tales or uh, writings like Santa Claus and or Lord of the Rings as a couple of quick examples. That's where those allegories sort of root back. But you have this intersection of stories with King Arthur that were written by the Knights Templars, or at least funded by the Knights Templars for writers, you know, starting in around 1200 AD that sort of uh, records all of this as holding genealogies history and beliefs within these writings which is completely standard of how they've done that throughout the ages whether or not it is the writings of homer um you know or the odyssey or any of these ancient writings you can even move forward into the roman times with um, ovides and his writings these are all holding the same type of history and writing just as you have Shakespeare doing the same thing and you move forward to modern entertainment it's the same sort of concept and they use the same allegories uh, throughout I just named a couple of them and so Jesus's bloodline and Nephilim and royal bloodlines are all encoded into King Arthur tales because they want to keep a written record of it and so Within this Celtic line of kingships, you have a crossover that's going to cross over to France there. You're going to have uh, a female by the name of Aragon who is going to marry somebody by the name of Aminabad, who is part of the Merovingian dynasty. So now you have that bloodline crossing over into the Merovingian dynasty. And, of course, the Celtic kingship of Arthur is going to fall to this to the saxons right and you're going to see a 
a pushback between the Saxons and the Celts and the Norse, um, who are also represented, the Norse are also represented in the round table um, of, of knights, which is actually a round table of kings in, in, in their allegory. Um, but I, I'm going down a rabbit hole that we, we don't have time to do. But understand that they're, they're fighting for control over uh, the English throne going forward. And with the end of the Arthur dynasty, that now makes this bloodline that has transferred over to the Merovingian dynasty the most ennobled bloodline in the world. Because the Merovingian dynasty has a perspective that they have all of the great bloodlines from several Nephilim bloodlines and from King Saul and from King David and from Jesus, and that this is the most significant bloodline that they start to cause the Roman church some significant problems. So they're going to work to bring them down. And they're trying to eliminate this bloodline because of the the so-called secret knowledge. And so this is what is talked about and written about in the Da Vinci Code, uh, sort of the backdrop to to their whole storyline. Yep. And it, you know, it's, it, you know, you make some interesting points um, in uh, chap- at least on page four, uh, chapter sixty-five. Uh, yeah, that you know, you're describing them as uh, uh, the sorcerer kings, and uh, you know, the you know, uh, the, the family dynasty was pretty strong and the church just kind of uh overlooked um the you know f- frequent youthful indis- indiscretions it, it, it's uh yeah the roman church for it, some reason was afraid yeah. of them yeah 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 it's it, 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 yeah, i i just don't it, it, it's interesting that such you know, the, the the points you're making, like all, all these royal bloodlines, just kind of converge uh, to make this one house, but you know, they really, uh, I, uh, r- r- history really doesn't look on them all that favorably. It, they just kind of are, are known for a lot of corruptions. It seems like. In terms of the Merovingian uh, dynasty. Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, you have to you know stand in the West. I mean, um, it's Christian dominated, so they're not going to look favorably upon uh, their opposition, right? And right. so they. But from a secular perspective, the the Merovingians are known for uniting France and 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 sort of bringing France along uh, and and making them you know into a rising power. Um, so it depends on, I guess, which perspective that, that you're looking at, at it from. But uh, I, what I would say is, is that the Merovingian is one of those dynasties that people need to have a, have a harder look at in terms of history and also understand why they show up in so much um, science fiction references and other references where they really don't seem to have a place unless you understand what the connections are. Okay, and, and so so they're 
establishing um, what the foundations of modern France, and we get the Templars eventually arising out of uh, you know. France, you know, a few, few centuries later. So, you know, we need to get to yeah. uh, the, the, the Templars and, you know, because we have a sure. kind of like an Oak Island show in, in the works, too. So uh, you're laying the foundations yep. for a lot of upcoming information we'll <laughs> be covering. Yeah, so now what's important to understand is, is what I was talking about was this um, two factions you've got two different views of Jesus and you've got two sort of primary religions in, in the West that are going to fight it out. And Roman Catholicism gets the upper hand and they start to persecute these other factions underground, underground all around the Middle East, all around Europe and underground in, into the church so that a lot of the people with the knowledge that they're going to inherit through the mystery schools and the Roman collegia are going to be part of uh, what they call a monastic order, which actually descends from the Essenes as the first Western monastic order, which is part of that group of polytheist uh, mysticism, cosmology of Gnosticism that is is uh, coming about at the time of Jesus and before. But they're going to take this knowledge and go underground into the church into groups known as the Augustines, the Cistercians, and the Benedictines, mm-hmm. and the, the Calabrian monks. And so understanding that they're working from inside the church and also that a number of these uh, religious groups don't just disappear, they just sort of go to where Roman Catholicism doesn't have a reach and will reappear uh, in, you know, after, you know, the year 1100 again in, in a significant way, which, I, which I'm going to get to. And also now understand that this is the same religion that the Merovingians were worshipping and same as the same religion that King Arthur would have been, uh, been worshipping with Merlin as being the wizard or the priest, as the head priest. Now, as we move forward with the understanding that the, the, the Catholic Church is going to try and stop the Merovingians, they cause the downfall of the Merovingians and try and wipe out that whole bloodline. But Dagobert survives along with the bloodline. So now we're going to roll forward in 1090. There's a fellow called Godfrey de Bouillon who's going to meet with these Calabrian monks in Italy. And they're going to meet up again in um, the Middle East. And the Calabrian monks and Godfrey de Bouillon, along with Hugh de Payan, um, and the folk of Anjou and a few others are going to meet with the Calabrian monks and they're going to create the Knights Templar in 1099. Uh, and they're going to establish that in a small priory on a rock in Sion where the name uh, Priory of Sion comes from. And it's the Abbey de Notre Dame de Sion, uh, the exact name. And Albert Mackey in the um, history of Freemasonry establishes that as the headquarters for for the the Priory of Sion, and that there are several of these uh, churches and things that are established all throughout the Middle East and even back into Egypt afterwards. But the main point here is they established the the Knights Templar. And the Payon and Anjou 
and to Bullion are blood descendants of Dagobert. And they are rulers and kings uh, or sons of kings at this point in time from the Lorraine area, all three of them, um, which can bring in the Cross of Lorraine and other interesting connections that we probably don't have time to go into today. But this is a very powerful bloodline and the Anjou are going to produce the Plantagenet that is going to be producing King Richard and where so many of the uh, American presidents like to connect their genealogies back to. And so the Knights Templar are a formation of, uh, of, the, of a Gnostic order formed in the Middle East based on the organizational structure of a group called the Assassins, which they did business with and worked with. And this is the organization that they're going to bring back to Europe. And it is on the surface a Christian organization, but underneath it is a polytheist religion. And so this will eventually lead to their their downfall. Uh, and other orders are also created at and around the same time, and most notably the Knights of St. John would be one of those orders, which still is in existence today, known as the Knights of Malta or the Knights of, uh, of, of Rhodes, um, and they answer to the Pope. And again, within that order, to be part of the leadership, you have to have royal bloodlines. So this whole idea of bloodlines at work within these organizations, within the church and outside the church. And so this is the organization that uh, becomes the, the most powerful organization in Europe ever formed. And it crosses all borders and has papal bulls and it has the full support of the, the Gnostics, as in the Benedictines, particularly in this case, who St. Bernard, who at the time of the official papal bull at 1128 at the Council of Troy is going to write a letter that you know establishes them officially as, as a Catholic order. And he is the second most powerful person next to the Pope in all of uh, Christianity of that time, and he's a Gnostic, and he's the founder. And he's also a relative to some of these... Uh, uh, Templars. So you have um, uh, St. Bernard's uh, uncle was Andre Montabard, for example, who is another founder, and he was, you know, from the Burgundy bloodline. And, of course, Montabard was also a big donor to the Cistercians. And uh, the son-in-law, Hudapan, uh, was actually the son-in-law of St. Bernard. And, and and St. Bernard also, you know, had people who married, uh, or Pay and also married into the Sinclair family, who is also part of the larger group of knights that aren't listed. But uh, the St. Clairs, or the Sinclairs as they became known, are the group, or the family that are going to start Freemasonry after the fall of, of the Templars. And we can get into those reasons uh, in, in a few minutes if you want. So understand that almost all of these, Forming founders of the Knights Templar were royal bloodlines. Only two are not, and they could be what they would call the black nobility, 
bloodlines. Um, the two that weren't were Rosal Gondomir and uh, Rosal and Gondomir, and both of those were Cistercian monks. So you have quite an interesting group that is going to that has formed that is uh, going to become you know the most powerful group within um, European society uh, within a hundred years, to the point where they're even developing. Uh, the modern banking uh, as we've come to know it today. That all comes from, from the Templars. Okay, and the think, Templars, what makes... Go ahead. Oh, oh no, I, I, I was just... Uh, uh, do, 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 just go, go, go and finish your thoughts. I, I, I was just... Uh, I have another question whenever you're done. Sure. The, the important thing to remember is is that the Templars, they don't they don't last forever. And in 1307, this organization that has so much power in, in, into one organization is all of a sudden taken down by the French king and, uh, you know, the Pope. And uh, so what happens going forward is, is that this, these bloodlines and this religion that's all housed and the power that they're operating from and for the kingships of Europe, which they're all part of, they're not going to let this happen again. So the Templars become the founders of all of the modern main secret societies as we would know them today. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it actually begins in 1188 when you have something called the cutting of the elms in uh, Geezer Castle. And uh, that happens because the ceremony happens because the people at the inside of the organization, uh, the royal families and the bloodlines and um, the inner core, the adepts, believe the Templars have lost their way and they have become greedy. And... What's going on here is they lost Jerusalem. And that's just something that wasn't permitted to happen. And there's a connection that I'm just going to take people back to is in 1118 on this small priory on the Rock of Sion, the Abbey to Notre Dame de Sion, is Baldwin is crowned the first king of Jerusalem. And this is going to be a heraldic title that rolls forward even to today, which is held by um, the King of Spain today, and uh, Philippe, King Philippe. And uh, it goes down through all the main, a lot of the main dynasties throughout Europe, and it's an important title because, as I mentioned earlier, they take their bloodlines back to Joshua, or not back to Joshua, but back to Benjamin through King Saul. And in the time of Joshua, uh, he awards Jerusalem to the Benjamites, which King Saul is a Benjamite. And so now they're crowned the King of Jerusalem, which is a title they're going to claim in the end time when they're going to, Antichrist is going to crown himself um, as ruler of the world in the temple in Jerusalem with the King of Jerusalem title. So people may want to you know, follow that heraldic um, title as we, as we move forward down the road into time. And so all of this is, is now sort of going to move forward into uh, this organization that splits in 1188 where the Rosicrucians are going to 
to uh, split away from. And that's where you get the original start of the Priory of Sion as it's listed in um, the records where the Grandmasters start in, at 1188. And the reason why you don't have Grandmasters before that is because they were Templar Masters. And I've got, if anybody ever wants to get a hold of me, I've got historical records to show where the Priory of Sion um, was recorded in history in terms of an organization. Um, there's lots of reference to them, in fact. So um, the Rosicrucians are now the first one that are working outside of the Templars as working for these royal bloodlines, and they're going to be, continue to be the intersection group between the bloodlines above them and the secret societies below them. So after the Templars are disbanded at 1307, you are going to have... Um, several groups being started up afterwards. And the first one, of course, is, is Freemasonry, which is you know, uh, started by Knights Templar who helped Robert the Bruce when they, feel, when they flee France and helped Robert the Bruce establish his kingdom um, at the Battle of uh, Bannockburn and separating himself and freedom from, from the English throne. And Freemasonry is set up now as is with a very distinct role. They're going to be sort of a, a, an introductory group, a lower level group that will have adepts as they climb up that, that ziggurat of knowledge that will lead into the higher levels. But their focus is going to focus on controlling politics um, and, the, and military organizations. And the Rosicrucians who were set up earlier, they're going to house the history, the religion, develop more on the alchemy side um, and to control these other groups as they report up the chain to the, the, the head families and head organizations above them. And you're going to have the Illuminati, which, you know, most people think that they're created in the 1700s they actually go back to about the 1500s. And their focus is, is to destroy Christianity and to focus on establishing world government, which was a Templar dream with the Gnostic religion. That's what they were working towards. Then you're going to have the Royal Society in 1660, which is designed to handle education outside of the Roman Church. Uh, it is designed to develop the sciences, and it's designed to lead people away from God and to discredit God. And it's created by Freemasons and Rosicrucians, and that's what their role is, is, is to dominate that, at, that aspect. And the Rothschilds are going to be formed to replace the banking arm of the Templars because they were the inventors of modern banking and grew incredibly rich from uh, their banking operations. And they're also going to develop within the Roman Church to replace the Templars, even though they've got the monastic orders, they're going to set up the Jesuits which are going to control at first the education and continue to control the education within the Roman Catholic Church and understand that the Jesuits interpret the Bible through Greek philosophies and the seven sacred sciences. Um, so it's really not a, you know, a monotheist organization within uh, the Roman Church. And they're set up to replace the banking within the church as well, and that comes about in about, um, oh, if I recall, 
somewhere in around the 1700s and the connection to the Swiss banking where some of the funds also went from the Templars and they're going to move the money from Rome to Switzerland and establish that whole banking system in conjunction. So you got those two arms that are working together. And what's interesting is, is whether or not it's Freemasonry or, or it's the Illuminati or it's the Rothschilds or it's the Royal Society or many of these other organizations, they all report to the Rosicrucians. Okay, so uh, you know, you're bringing up all, you know, a lot of these uh, names like the Rosicrucians and Illuminati that have you know, become uh, a lot more well-known uh since the uh, Da Vinci Code and you know all this, you know what is you know we're back to the you know dotting your eyes across long spans of history is uh, you know you know the Templar and Illuminati groups are all. Uh, in power positions, kind of like this world domination uh, type theme that goes back to uh, you know Hermes and Nimrod and the, the Atlantean uh, cultures. So you, know, you do a great job of connect, you know, connecting all that uh, information for us. Um, and you know, there's you know the teachings that you touched on, and then in your uh, chapter seventy-one, and you, you know you start to get uh, uh, give us more of you know some, some shocking information about uh, you know, the the teachings, and you already. Uh, you know, did make a brief mention of uh, the, the Antichrist. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the pivotal uh, chapter 71 of your book, uh, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a very, very interesting chapter. And uh, if people haven't figured out um uh, it's a long book. We're on chapter 71. There's actually 98 chapters in the book. So, but just uh, so give people a bit of a uh, uh, sense of relief. If you're going to tackle the book, every chapter is six to seven pages and it's a mini story within a story that leads into the next chapter or that will keep coming up, up as the book unfolds. So you can read as much of it as as you want and come back to it and be able to continue to pick it up. So when we're talking about chapter 71, we're talking about, um, you know, the 33rd degree um, and the adept level of, of these groups. And so in Freemasonry, which is where this comes from, which is the Scottish Rite, 33rd degree is an adept. Um, and there's also the older order that is the York Rite that has three degrees. And uh, so this is this is at the adept level, and it's at the adept level where you learn who uh, the the true God is that you're going to worship in in Freemasonry and these secret societies and in um, the Gnostic religions, and that God is Lucifer, and Lucifer shows up in the King James Version Bible 
um, in Isaiah 14:12, and uh, it's a Latin name that's kind of inserted in, into the Bible because the actual Hebrew word is Hail El. Uh, and notice the E-L on the end, because that's how an angel's name will end, whether or not it's Gabriel or Michael or Azazel, uh, or the book of Enoch, they're all going to end in L. Lucifer is neither an English word nor a Hebrew word, so it doesn't really fit there, although it does suit them in terms of who Lucifer is, because that's who people at the adept level are going to be taught who, who they're going to be worshiping. And that um, what they start to learn as well is some of the secrets that they're supposedly will, will give them the ability to be reincarnated and uh, knowledge that will also help them to, to, to be God. So they're on this sort of evolutionary process to become a God, um, which is a very important doctrine for, for, the, for the end time. But it's not the highest level of the traditions. And, you know, just to oversee other Masonic lodges, you might have to be a um, fifth degree, uh, for example. And we're not, I'm not exactly sure how many degrees will go up the ladder. Nine is the most that I've come across. Um, and, and of course, three in the scale is, is equated to the 33rd degree that most people are familiar with, with the Scottish Rite. And so some people actually think there's 12 or 13 degrees. Uh, but when you get beyond a certain level, beyond the Rosicrucians, these are the levels only taught by the purebloods and to the ones who um, are, you know, sort of carrying the, the complete power. So it's not going to be taught at, at, at the lower levels. And at the adapt level, they start to do the old traditional types of rituals and that will include ritual sacrifice it will also include um, drinking of, of human blood and everything that you've heard about in your worst nightmares coming out of uh, religions of, of the ancient world because they're still true to, to, to that ancient world and it is the stepping stone to uh, the Illuminati, which will then go in, into the Rosicrucians. And so these beliefs that they have are going to show up in everything that they do. And that's why they keep a lot of this information alive, although they're not going to show you what their secret rituals are or things like that. But their history and everything that they're taught is going to show up in absolutely everything, which is why American iconology is so inundated with Freemason imagery is because most of, not all, but many of the, the founders were, were Freemasons or, or higher. Okay. And you, yeah, you know, uh, on page 499, you uh, dis, uh, discuss the grand architect, who who he really is, and and just doesn't uh like Ben Franklin and you know, I don't know maybe, maybe Jeff uh whether or not Jefferson was a mason or not uh uh you know their uh achievements for you know creating a you know, democracy or you know republic uh just doesn't seem consistent with what you're describing and uh, your, your, uh, th this chapter, uh, yeah. So, so two yeah, things. It's, it's different. 
two things. One is is uh, uh, you know the use of the name of the great architect of the universe, which is why they have so much focus on building things and monuments, right? That's that ancient sort of connection. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you look at what was going on at the time of the creation of um, the United States and the 13 colonies, which is another interesting number in Masonic um, sacred numbers and geometry, um, is that you have the Roman church, which is continuing to persecute their beliefs and their religions completely underground, right? So Mm -hmm. what they're trying to do is they're trying to set up, and they've lost the Catholic kingship in England, right, which were the Stuarts, which goes back to the Bruce dynasty, which was, again, one of those, again, significantly noble bloodlines. And now they've been replaced by the Hanovers and, 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 and Protestants by the time of the revolution. But what they want to make sure of is, is that they're going to prevent the reach of the Roman church from preventing them from having power over this new country that they're going to build that's going to be the model for world government and their end time play. And so they're going to create a democracy um, where they just can't take the person at the top um, and control everything. They have a division of power and you have a constitution and there's a separation of church and state. This is to protect, you know, everybody thinks that it was just to protect the Christian religion. Well, no, it was protect the Gnostics so that they couldn't be persecuted, which is one of the reasons why we're starting to see Christians now being um, prosecuted under the Constitution, because it wasn't set up to to protect Christians. It was protected to set up the religion of the secret society. Was this was it also set up to uh, protect uh, uh, the listeners from barking dogs? <laughs> yeah, we should have. We've 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 taken care of Riley right now. He's now out of the room again. Oh, <laughs> we, we welcome uh, pets. We, you know, we we might even have a pet communication sh- uh, show in the works too. So it, uh, Riley's welcome. <laughs> Riley likes to make an introduction every now and then. <laughs> But it, 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 yeah, it, yeah, Gary, you, you know, it, it, information is just interesting. You know, like you know, the contrast. You know, you know, like some of the founding fathers and uh, what what was in uh, you know Chapter Seventy One. Just it, 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 it's just a, a you know different take on you know looking back at re- revered. Uh, uh, you know, people from you know, you know, just just say American history. It's 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 why, as I, I said earlier in, in in the show, why you need to understand the organizational structure of power, mm-hmm. both um, you know ancient history in today and recent history, because it is the same organizational structure. Okay, so, um, okay, so, so we have you know, these 
uh, you know, uh, diabolical teachings going on. Uh, you know, you know, we also have, uh, you know, just bring uh, the story of, uh, you know, the, you know, the Nephilim, you know, up to date. You know, you also have what, uh, you know, what people talk about with the, the, the you know these uh, conspiracies like you know the chemtrails and uh you know the Georgia guidestones you know all, all these other uh you know things that almost seem like a depopulation program is, is that you know some of these uh you know more pure bloodline type people wanting to uh weed out um you know, th- those of us who uh, aren't, uh, you know, up to speed with, you know, h- how uh, pure and mighty they are? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, without, you know, speculating too far, I mean, the Rosa Guy, the Georgian Guy Stones, um, you know, are thought to be a, ro- you know, Rosicrucian in nature and the population they'd like to, you know, take the earth down to is, uh, as I recall, 500 million. That's written on there. That's yeah, kind of reflective. That's kind of reflective of what they would like to see, and 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 so what they would, their vision of that is that most of that population would be people who would be the descendants of the uh, of the of the Nephilim, um, and the higher the pedigree will probably come into play on that as well. So they're not only going to have to have the right bloodline, uh, which is also known as real in the Rosicrucian doctrine of something in the blood that, you know, goes back to, um, to, to the giants of prehistory and uh, which is the same doctrine that the Nazis had um, that they were trying to recreate that, blonde hair, blue-eyed, Aryan, Nephilim trait, as opposed to the red hair, hazel-eyed ones of the Celtic nature, uh, both, uh, you know, sort of go to back in the Tuatha and Nan tradition, but they take that back to Thule, which was their um, um, Atlantis, so to speak, and that they believe that uh, uh, the Aryans uh, derived from, uh, you know, the, the gods, which were another form of Nephilim. And so... This is uh, an ideology where not only is it about bloodlines, but it's also what they call the gene of ISIS. And so that they believe that everybody has who's a descendant not, not only has a bloodline, but also have genes that will reflect their nature. That's where the word Genesis comes from. And they also have what they call the spark of the divine, which is the spark that comes from their ennobled creation from uh, from the gods or, or, or the fallen angels and this is what they want to harmonize and unite in world government in the end time so that not only can they win the battle against the oppressive god of the bible as they say but also evolve into godhood because they believe if they can unite the spark um that they can make that happen or vibrate into a different level of being as what it's also uh, known as. And this is what, when you hear people like the Bushes, whether it was, you know, Bush senior or, or junior, when they used in, um, 
uh, a, a few speeches, uh, something called a thousand points of light when they're talking right, yeah. about creating the new world order that I like to call the Nephilim world order that they're trying to create from the bloodlines. Um, that's what they're trying to unite. And so again, they will use their allegories in plain sight to tell you what they're talking about. And this new world doesn't have room for the billions of humans that they don't want around. They'll want just enough around for slaves and or for sacrifice. Okay. So, um, you know, you know, Gary, we're down to uh, like 11 minutes, somewhere around there. But, um, you know, you know, a lot of people, um, you can see all over YouTube and Facebook where, uh, people really enjoy, uh, deriding, you know, the Georgia Godstones and, you know, the new world order and, all these other nefarious groups, but um, how do we uh, thwart the regular people like us? How how do we thwart them from uh, stopping the 5G stuff from coming into our houses and making us sick and we stop the GMO foods and the health care system run amok and uh, all the things like that that you know the elite can do to us you know how, how do we beat them at their own game well i think first of all people have to wake up and start to question things um we're you know the so many are just like to go along with uh, the flow and a lot of what they're offering, you know, sounds good. And a lot of people will want the technology that's coming because it's going to be promised to give longer life and better health. Um, But in all of that technology, there is um, a flip side to it. And the flip side is, is, you know, what's the consequence of, 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 of that knowledge. So, we just we need to we need to push back, but their organizational structure is so broad and deep and in so many levels that it's really almost impossible to stop. Um, and they're going to continue to corrupt the world, and in all sorts of, of, of fashion. Because one of the things that I like to kind of point to, as you know, from a prophetic side, is is that um, Jesus said that his second coming in the sign of the end of the times, one of those signs that it's recorded in Matthew 24 uh, as one of the chapters it's recorded in is, is one of the signs is as it was in the days of Noah. So shall be, you know, in his second coming in the end time. And the world was not just violent in the end time. It was um, totally corrupted. And in fact, in in six twelve Genesis six twelve, you know it'll say something to the effect that and you know behold the the whole earth was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. And if you take that word corrupt back to Hebrew, that's the Hebrew word shakath, uh, and that means not just violence; it means to destroy, to corrupt, to ruin, to decay, to be spoiled. So the whole world was spoiled. And I had mentioned early on in the show that that technology 
had the ability to be had was developed to such a level that it was perhaps even more advanced than what we have today. And if that's the case, and we can change the genome of a plant, and we can start to create artificial intelligence, and if we can uh, do DNA splicing and manipulation, we're on the verge of creating all of these fantastic creatures and destructive types of uh, possibilities in terms of what we're creating and not knowing the consequences of that they did in in the antediluvian times and we're not in the end time yet so our knowledge may not be as advanced as what had happened back then and so this knowledge is developing at such a rapid pace today whether or not it's in quantum computing um, you name it it's, it's going and, and it's all starting to merge and their power and entrenchment is so deep, we can't really stop it. Um, but we don't have to always participate in it. Um, and I'm not telling people not to take drugs. Um, I mean, there's some good prescriptions and there's bad prescriptions. And there's over-prescription and there's under-prescribing. And, and we have to be, be, be careful on those aspects. So we have to be able to discern what's going on. But at the end of the day, it's been ordained that they're going to uh, create this end time. And this is a time that they're going to sell to everybody as not this apocalyptic thing that the Christians and the Jewish people are talking about, but it's going to be a new millennium, a new age uh, where humans are going to transform into their next level of being. Unfortunately, it's just not, what they're going to give to humans. It's just the people who are part of the bloodlines and, and, and the genes that they're going to try and do. And so um, I get asked by a lot of people, well, if they're that powerful, then why do you have things like President Trump and why do you have Brexit and why haven't they got everything done yet? And, you know, my general response is, is if they could make it happen today, they would. Uh, and that they are ready to do everything that they want to do today. But there's a stumbling block, not just the Christians that are in the world, but everybody who opposes them, but also something called the restrainer. And the restrainer, until the restrainer is removed, the end time can't happen. So try as they may, they're going to be thwarted. They will accept the ordained times if they have to, but they would prefer to do it beforehand. So this march is going to continue. So no matter what happens um, with uh, temporary stalls is, is eventually they will get what they want. The trouble is, is we just don't know when. But in the meantime, we need to stand up. We need to vote as long as we're uh, permitted to vote. And we need to role model, not become what we're opposing. And so role modeling uh, how we should be in the world and how we should oppose is just as important as opposing. So we don't want to be these violent people because as we've seen in revolutions past is as they eat their own anyways, and it gets usurped and controlled. So we, we need to push back in a way that um, still maintains our integrity, but we need to understand is, is that, they will never stop. Their organization is that strong and that powerful. Okay. Hey, um, I think we're down to about four minutes. Uh, 
Barbara, do you have any concluding remarks? How can you conclude? You've only just scratched the surface. Are you kidding me? Well, uh, that's, well, mean, that, uh, that's why Gary's coming back uh, in, in February. In February. Yeah, I, um, I I kind of, there there were a number of places that I kind of wanted you to stretch it out at, but I, I was hoping you could kind of get up to where you got up to. Unfortunately, we're down to three minutes. Um, I, I strongly feel that, that you've, you've, you've really brought that link forward so that people understand where the bloodlines come in and then the Brexit and stuff like that. So I, I think it's amazing that you've been able to take, you know, the, the ancient stuff and, and follow it forward into time here. Um, but, gosh, you've gone in so many different directions. It's, it's kind of, I don't know how you would tie this up. How would you tie it up? I mean, <laughs> well, I, I I would basically say this. I mean, this is a very large topic, and uh, yeah. But you need to. We need to understand what happened in prehistory, because nothing is new under the sun, and what was will be again. And it doesn't matter whether or not we're trying to understand prophecy, or if we're trying to understand what they're trying to recreate today in the larger geopolitical scenario and and how you've got all of the religions starting to work together with forums every other month and trying to create you know compromise so that they can have this umbrella religion of uh, you know that um, it will be the universal uh, religion what we and it doesn't matter whether or not you want to um, include what we're seeing in entertainment or what you're reading in in literature, you can't really understand any of that until you understand their allegories and their language and their history and their beliefs that are built into everything. Everything has uh, in their literature, media, teaching, allegories and beliefs and history that goes right back into time. And also they'll tell you what they're planning to do in advance. And, and, but we have, you know, but we have to be prepared to listen. Yeah, I, you know, it's that. That said, um, we want to make sure that people can find your website. It's the Genesis Six Conspiracy dot com, um, and the book, of course, is I'm sure on Amazon. Uh, strongly suggest that people get it and read it before he comes back again, so that we can have. You know more in more questions that sort of stretch him just a little bit further. Mark, it's time kind of to say good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you so much, Gary, for being a fantastic guest, and thank you, Barbara, for allowing me to do this. And hopefully, <laughs> we will get a confirmation about. Tuesday's show tomorrow. You know, just keep checking Bar- Barbara's website, uh, and you know, I think we we have an exciting guest for uh, Tuesday's show. So, um, yes, we are definitely into exciting people. Yeah, and, and we have the... lots more in, in in the works too. <laughs> we certainly do, but for now, you got to say good night, Mark. <laughs> 
All right. Good, good night. Th- thank you, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Absolutely. Good night, and thank you very much, Gary. This has been absolutely wonderful. I can't wait for you to come back. Well, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Good night now. <laughs>